Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We hope that you'll be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. I want to speak to you this morning about a prophetic season that we have entered. A prophetic season that I am calling a season of beautiful repentance. A season of beautiful repentance. Over the past couple of weeks, and if you weren't here or if you didn't catch those messages, I encourage you, get onto our platforms, have a listen, read, or yeah, go, go and listen to those messages because they really set the tone and the context for what we're going to be talking about today and over the next few weeks and in the season that God has led us into. Over the past couple of weeks, Pastor Andreas has delivered a strong prophetic word into the life of our spiritual family. Would you say amen to that? It is a call back to the heart of God. It is a call out of frivolity and distraction. And it's really God trying to arrest the attention of His people. Now what happens when a prophetic word is given, there's a few reasons that God speaks prophetically into a situation. Number one, it is to reveal. It is to reveal the current state. It is to reveal His heart. It is to, re- to reveal things to us that we cannot see ourselves or that we're not quite understanding for ourselves in the situation we're in. And God knows we don't understand it because He can see what's going on in our lives. He can see uh, the fruit of it. Second of all, a prophetic word is given to direct. It's to say, this is where you are. This is how I feel about it. Go in this direction. This is what you need to do. This is the way I want you to, to go or the path I want you to follow. And thirdly, a prophetic word is given to foretell. So if you go this way, this is where, this is where you're going to end up. However, if you go that way, that's where you're going to end up. So a prophetic word speaks into a situation to bring light, to guide into a predetermined outcome, a place of blessing in this case where God wants His people to be. A prophetic word is a, a wake-up call. It calls us to wake up and, and wipe the sleep from our eyes. You know, sometimes spiritually we get groggy. You know that feeling after you have a Sunday nap? Oh, you also have kids. No such thing, right? <laughs> after you've had a nap in the afternoon, you wake up and you, just, you, you think you're going to feel better, but you don't. Sometimes life kind of feels that way. We take a lot of blows. Uh, spiritually, we kind of go through the motions and we still just got sleep in our eyes. A prophetic call is meant to say, hey, it's time to wake up. It's an opportunity for us to see things as they truly are. True condition. And it's an invitation to do something about it. Now that is a beautiful thing. Because God never gives us a prophetic word to reveal our state to us so that He can condemn us and leave us there. God speaks into our situations and into our lives so that we can, by His grace and His leading, do something about the state of our heart or the way we think about someone or a situation. It's a call to a time for work. And many of us don't like that that word, work. But work, we can work at things to create productivity, which creates fruitfulness, which creates blessing. That is as much true in a garden as it is in your work arena, as it is in your spiritual life, where God says, I want you to work on something here. So that as you do, you will become productive in this area, which will produce the fruit that I want to produce in that area, so that you can be an avenue and a conduit for blessing. Pastor Andreas' prophetic word 
comes primarily out of two books of the Bible, the one being Malachi and the other one being a portion of Scripture out of Revelations 3. And there is something in common with these two portions of Scripture. And I want to start there this morning. So Pastor Andreas has laid a good foundation. And I want to start building on that this morning. And we're going to start today, we're going to continue next week on a season that I am calling Beautiful Repentance. Repentance for me is one of the most beautiful things in the Bible. So often we think of it with a negative undertone. It means acknowledgement of guilt or I have to feel bad or it's a sorriness. Or... For me, repentance is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we're going to get a little, a little while later, I'll explain to you why I see it this way. But repentance is a call to change. It's a call into more of God. It's a call to let go of that which holds me back from His fullness and up and into His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His grace. That's what repentance really is. So when I say a season of beautiful repentance, it's the whole idea of, tra of, of, of trading ashes for beauty. It's the idea of letting go of that which holds us back and embracing and laying hold of that which God wants to put into us to take us forward in Him to produce fruit not just in this life but into eternity, to make our lives fruitful, fruitful in prayer, fruitful in our relationships, fruitful in evangelism, fruitful in kingdom manifestation and the works of the kingdom. Wherever we go, God can take us to another realm, another level of anointing, of ability, and of grace in Him. So let's start where we are. Wherever you go on a journey... If I had to explain to you how to get to my house, the first question I would say to you is, where are you coming from? And this is where a prophetic word has been given to us, to reveal where we are at. I want to read to you a few excerpts really quickly from the book of Malachi, because here's the thing that both Malachi and the Laodicean church in Revelation 3 have in common. Both of them did not realize their true spiritual condition. In other words, they were deceived. They thought they were that God was happy with them. They thought they were kind of going about their religious thing and God was pleased and, that, and you know, life kind of went on. They thought that they were blessed or prosperous and successful and the reality couldn't have been further from the truth. Let me give you some examples here. In the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verse 2, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? What a question. Chapter 1, verse 6. As a son honors his father and a servant his master, if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am the master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? And yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Utterly oblivious. Move over to chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. says, and this is the second thing you do, God speaking to His people. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and with crying. So He does not even regard your offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. And you say, for what reason? Again, the people are God asking. Later on in the same chapter, verse 17, God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And yet you say, in what way have we wearied Him? You think I'm done. I'm not. I've got two more. 3 verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But yet you say, God, in what way have we robbed you? He's talking about tithes and offerings. 
Finally, verse chapter 3, 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? We see in all of these passages throughout this book a clear disconnect between God and His people, between the way God feels about His people and the way God's people feel about themselves and the way God's people feel about God. The tragedy, people, is that this book was written as the last prophetic word given to the nation of Israel before Jesus arrived 400 years later. This was the state of God's church. Apathetic, indifferent, going through a religious system or set of laws or lifestyle, let me put it this way, going through a religious culture in which they assumed that by belonging to this culture, we, we are the chosen people of God and God is pleased with us. And yet not knowing all the while that God is offended, God is deeply hurt, God is upset because the attitude of their heart was a prideful one and they did not even revere or honor the name of God, let alone depend on Him or look to Him. We see the same in the book of Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, where God is speaking about the Laodicean church. And I'm not going to read all of the whole account because Pastor Andreas has done that over the past couple of weeks. But this is how it starts. God says, I know your works. Let's pause there for a moment. There's no indifference here. There's no doubt here. God says, I am God and I know your works. I know what's really going on. That you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, what does that word lukewarm mean? It means indifferent. It means not passionate about the things of God. To be hot means to be passionate. It means to be zealous. It means that there's a pursuit in my heart that I'm eagerly going after. It's not lackadaisical. It's not only when it's convenient. It's not... It, it actually is a priority of my life. It is something I am actively, very deliberately, on purpose pursuing. That's what it means to be on fire for something. You know, Craig, when your heart was set on fire for Chantel, mm. <laughs> chatting at night, am I right? Chatting in the evenings over the computer? Pursuing, going after... Am I wrong? You put your mouth open like that? Weren't you chatting to each other? You, did he? Sorry, I must have this wrong. Chantel, when your heart was on fire for Craig and you were pursuing, you understand the romantic kind of love. Now, listen, my love with my Father in heaven, I think sometimes we do over-romanticize this thing. On the one hand, I'm the bride of Christ. There is a romantic element to it. But on the other side, here's my dad. That's just weird, okay? That's just creepy. No romance. Nah. Dad. God. I'm cool with that. But there is a pursuit in my heart for dad. That is not casual. That is not on the side. That is not confined to Sunday mornings and a Wednesday night Bible study or five-minute devotional in the morning. It is a pursuit that so consumes my heart and my life that it, it takes up my attention all day long. David writes things like, on your law I meditate all the day long. You tried that before? Man, it's hard. What does he mean? He means that his heart is constantly
consistently orientated towards a pursuit of God's will in this moment, God's heart in this moment. That's what it really means. And so here God is saying, because you are not like that, because you are lukewarm, because you think you can just worship with as a, you know, as a, as a, as a religious duty or go through a few motions, without truly engaging your heart, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And then he says this, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So hear the word of God in a prophetic word again to the church. says, you think you're doing okay, but you do not even see that you are naked, you are poor, you are blind, because you think that because you got some stuff, you have a status in the community, you got some money, you live in a nice house, you got some, you know, you, your life doesn't look so bad, you think you're okay, and God says you're blind. You just don't see the truth. All you see is the temporal things that are around you. Folks, here's the point I want to make with you this morning. And this really is the title of my message. Concerning the condition of our hearts, concerning where we are at, God doesn't need convincing. We do. Many of us, we come to God and we say, God, would you please do this? And God, would you please come through in this situation? And God, would you please help me here? As though we come to God and we're trying through our prayer to convince Him to come into our situation. Because we know kind of that we need Him there, but there's this pursuit for Him to come in. And God's sitting there, I don't need convincing. You don't need to try and convince me to come into your situation. That's all I want to do. But I can't. Unless some things change. And perhaps the situation you're finding yourself in in this time and in this season is a waiting room because God is just waiting. It's not like you're in the waiting room waiting for the doctor to be ready. The doctor is sitting in his office waiting for you to decide to get up off the waiting room chair and to walk into his office and to allow him to do what he needs to do. God doesn't need convincing of our condition. We do. God doesn't need convincing of our need for Jesus. We do. God doesn't need reminding of our depravity without Jesus. We do. And God does not need reminding of His great love for us. We do. We do. Again and again and again and again, we need reminding of the greatness of God's immense love, passionate love, hot, fiery, burning love for you and I. The book of Revelation says that the image of Jesus, when John sees him, he says that his eyes are like fire. And you know, I used to think that was such a scary thing. Scary. Imagine looking into his eyes of fire. Fire is consuming, right? Fire burns up things. That's a scary thought. But those eyes are looking at you with a fiery love that does desire to consume every other thing so that your love in and for him may be complete and whole and pure. 
so that we can experience the fullness of who He is. You see, the beauty of this prophetic revelation that God gives to these churches is that He doesn't leave them there. This is the way the book of Malachi ends. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the coming and the great, of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What's he talking about? The day of judgment. And he will turn the hearts. Say, turn the hearts. Turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And there's this beautiful promise that although God says this is the condition, I am sending my spirit, I will send my voice into the situation to turn your heart back. You see, the heart of the Father is one of correction and guidance focused on the Son. My heart towards my daughters is one of correction and guidance because I love them. I don't let them just do anything. I train them up. I teach them right from wrong. I teach them the way to behave. And when they don't, I correct them because I'm a loving father. Not a perfect father by any means, but I love my children enough to correct them. And likewise, the heart of a son is one of meekness and yieldedness, focused on the Father and desiring of His counsel. I am blessed with wonderful children who know that they are loved and who look to me for guidance. There's nothing more precious as a father, as a mother, as a parent. Also, in the book of Revelation, we, we, we ended on verse 17. Listen to what verse 19 from chapter 3 in Revelation says. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and... Let's say it aloud. What must we do? Repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. You see, folks, it's not this journey of me trying to get to God, of me trying to convince him to let me in. Jesus is saying, I am standing at the door and knocking. I am coming after you. I love you. I want your heart. I want what's best for you. Will you let me come in? Now this speaks of a yieldedness to intimacy. And as the old cliche goes, what is intimacy? Into me see. It's opening our hearts to say, God, you're the surgeon, you're the doctor, you know what's going on inside there even better than I do. Because you've made it clear, I think I know what's going on in there, but you've made it clear that I don't know what's going on in there. So I need you to show me what's really going on in my heart. Help me to see the truth of my condition. As I've said, it's not that we're waiting on God begging Him to come in. God doesn't need convincing. God needs yieldedness. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write that down because my entire message today is encapsulated in that one statement. God does not need convincing to come into our situation. It's not that we're trying to get Him to do something. What God needs and is waiting for is yieldedness. 
The essence of repentance is a sincerity of heart that acknowledges the truth and a willingness to change according to that truth. I want to say that again because I want you to understand. The essence of repentance is not about being sorry. The essence of repentance is a sincerity of heart that is willing to acknowledge the truth as God speaks it and also is willing to change according to that truth. What truth? The truth of my spiritual condition. The truth of my need for Jesus. The truth of my absolute depravity without Him to do anything of value on my own. And also the truth of His great love for me. The word repent, let me break it down for you and explain to you what it means. In the Greek, so in the New Testament, the word is metanoin, and it's to change one's mind. It's the same root Greek word as metamorphosis. Now, what is a metamorphosis? What is that? It's when a little worm wraps itself up in a cocoon of silk and a few weeks later comes out changed into something completely new, into a butterfly. A metamorphosis has taken place, a complete change. So metanoin means to change one's, not just your mind, but your way of thinking, your way of seeing things according to the truth. I used to think this, now I understand it is this. The Hebrew, so the Old Testament meaning for repent, means to turn, to return, or to turn back. Now when you add these two together, you get a complete understanding of what it means to repent. It means to turn from your way, my, my way, for me to turn from my way, my direction, my way of thinking, reject it, and embrace a completely different way, way of thinking, ethos, value system, and make it my own. And as I make it my own, metamorphosis begins to take place within me. That's what it means to be a new creation. That happens once off when we give our lives to Jesus, but the reality of that is a journey, and it's a daily working out. Folks, we have been wrongfully taught in the church that we can just pray a prayer and everything is fixed. We've wrongfully been taught that I can come and sit at the altar and shed some tears and get up and everything's done and dealt with and I can just walk on and carry on living my life as I was before. That is a lie. Now, yes, business can be done on the altar. God can change things in an instant and in a moment. And I can make a decision for and towards God in a moment. That does change the rest. But the business end of that is not what I say in the front. It's how it works itself out every day in my life. Repentance is not just about me standing and saying before God this morning, Lord, I'm sorry, I see that my way is wrong. Please forgive me. It's also saying, I now turn away from that and I'm not going to pursue that and go after that anymore and I'm going to pursue you. This is why repentance is such a beautiful thing. Because here's what happens, people. Don't say this is just me, this is all of us. We head on this journey and we get distracted. We get sidetracked. And sometimes we even go back. And Jesus is still knocking at the door. Jesus is still saying, I don't want that for you. That is not good for you. That is going to lead to death, eternal separation, judgment, problems for you down the line. God, I forgot. I see it again. I'm coming back.
God's heart continues to call us and to woo us into what He has destined for us. But real change is required, not just a prayer, real change. The call to repentance does not consider what my struggle is. It doesn't consider what my background is, what the color of my skin is, what my financial situation is. It doesn't consider how long I've been walking in the wrong direction. It simply points me to Jesus. It simply reorientates me to Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. This is the purpose of the prophetic season of beautiful repentance that we are in. Realigning and reorientating our lives to Jesus. Now you say to me, Michael, but I am a follower of Jesus. I have been for a long time. Yes, praise God, that is good. But could there be things there in your heart, in your life, where you think you're doing that right, the way you're pursuing Jesus is acceptable and pleasing, and maybe God doesn't feel the same way? Are the fruit you're experiencing in your life testament to the fact that you are pursuing Jesus with all of His heart? If He is the Prince of Peace, are you filled with anxiety and depression and, and anger? Or are you have at peace? Do you have joy in your heart? How about patience, kindness, self-control, peace? Where are the fruit of the Spirit? Repentance is not an instantaneous event, folks, and that should be liberating for you. <laughs> liberating. Because you know what? Every time I make a decision for Jesus, I am met with greater opposition in that area of my life. And I fall, and I'm going to get it wrong. And I'm so glad that God is more patient than I am. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Now there, again, that word, metamorphu, metamorphosis. It comes through again. Into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. And I need to begin concluding with these thoughts. Folks, any authentic change that has taken place in your life towards any kind of godliness, towards any kind of Christ-likeness, has not come through your own effort, but has come through and has been wrought in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I are powerless to change ourselves. How's that New Year's resolution working for you? How's that new fitness regime going? How's that diet? How's that Bible reading plan? All these fleshly efforts that we put in to try and make things work. And then you know what the worst is? The enemy encourages us to do it because we feel all encouraged and spiritual and pious and we get it right for three weeks and we feel like we're, you know, look what I'm getting right now. Until we start failing and then he's the first one there with a knife going, ha, 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 I knew you couldn't do it. You didn't know, but I knew. You know what? God also knew you couldn't do it. That's why he gave you his Holy Spirit. That's where grace meets us. Grace is nothing more and nothing less than the very person and presence of Jesus Christ meeting us at our point of need with all His power and with all His grace and with all His ability, enabling us to do that which we cannot do ourselves. But it requires something of us. For us to engage with the grace and the enablement of Jesus, 
we need to yield to it. When I had this revelation, my life was changed. Here's how the revelation came to me. Through a quote by Winston Churchill, and I know I've shared this with you before, but I get encouraged every time I share it again. Winston Churchill was giving a, a speech to an RAF uh, group of pilots that were going to go on a, uh, on a mission to go and bomb certain key strategic targets of the enemy. And he said to them, Gentlemen, sometimes it is not enough to do your best. Sometimes you have to do what is required. Now we teach our children, just do your best, that's okay. And we tell ourselves, well, I tried my best when we failed. That's when we say it. I tried my best and it didn't work. What Winston Churchill was saying to these men is it's not going to be good enough for you to come home from this mission and tell me that you tried your best but you missed the target. You have to hit the target. And in our Christian life, ladies and gentlemen, it's not enough for me to stand before Jesus one day after everything that he has done for me and go, I tried my best. Jesus doesn't expect me to try my best. He doesn't expect me to do my best. He expects me to do what is required. To which I say, throwing up my hands in the air, I can't. To which he says, I know. And that's the point. You finally got it. When that finally sunk into my heart is the day my heart flung open and said, Jesus, then you have to. And he says, I'm delighted to, to do it for you. Let me, let me come in and be for you the strength that you need because you don't have the strength that it takes. Let me come in and be the righteousness that you need because you don't have what it takes. Let me be that fire in your heart that I talk about because you don't have what it takes. Roy Hessian in his book, The Calvary Road, says this. Dying to self, in other words, my own ability, in other words, my best efforts, me doing my best, that my flesh, my ability, my intentions. Dying to self is not a thing we do once for all. There may be an initial dying when God first shows these things, but ever after, it will be a constant dying, for only so can the Lord Jesus be revealed constantly through us. You see, the only life that pleases God and that can be victorious is His life, never our life, no matter how hard we try. But inasmuch as our self-centered life is the exact opposite of His, we can never be filled with His life unless we are prepared for God to bring our life constantly to death. Folks, let's stop trying to convince God of what we think we need. He doesn't need convincing. He knows exactly where it's at. Let us yield to Him. And let us yield to what He says we need so that Jesus can come in and be Lord, be life, be strength, be peace, and give us that living hope which produces within us a fire for Him and produces within us a life of fruitfulness and Christ-likeness to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's stand together. 
We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.